0: Welcome to the Reach Young Adult Ministry Podcast with your teacher, Pastor Taylor Gabbard. There is a stirring. There is a hunger. Yes. your personal opinion. Okay. This is an example of an absolutely ridiculous problem. A ridiculous problem with a really ridiculously simple answer. All he had to do was pull. And not only did all he have to do was pull, but it was written right there on the door in front of him. If he would just follow the instructions. But in that moment, in a moment of pride and stubbornness, He was ridiculously stupid instead of ridiculously humble, right? And here's the thing. This looks dumb from the outside, but we do this all the time in our lives. Our lives are a series of ignoring ridiculously simple instructions and doing the most ridiculous thing we can think of. If you ask a non-Christian about Christianity, it looks ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. If you don't believe in God and if you don't believe in Jesus, nothing we're, we're doing makes any sense. But if you ask God, we are always the ones being ridiculous. So tonight, I want you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. And we're going to start by seeing the ridiculous problem that we all have. Starting in verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man in the view of his master, and eminent, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but afflicted by leprosy. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, The girl who is from the land of Israel spoke such and such. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. But when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to keep alive? that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. I want you to see the start of this. The start of this ridiculous problem is Naaman's pride. It says that Naaman was a great man, an eminent man, in the view of his master. Now the reason it says that the Lord gave them a victory, it is acknowledging, the writer is acknowledging here that everything that happens is overseen by the sovereignty of God. So them ever being victorious, that was because God was allowing it in those moments. But what we see here is that Naaman is being compared to things by his master in human eyes. His value and his pride are coming from this comparison with the world around him and a comparison that's done by other humans. This is not pride from looking at things in God's eyes. We have the same problem, but we see it in a different way in our culture. Ours is actually the anxiety that comes from prideful comparisons. You look to your left and to your right, and and somebody else went to a better school than you or got a better career than you or gets paid more than you. Or how about the fact that all we do on social media all the time is trumpet how great our lives should look. We put out this fake image and we go, look at all the great stuff I'm doing, look at how much fun I'm having. And everyone who can't keep up is constantly afraid of what they're missing out on and how their life doesn't seem to match up. That's all pride. That's a comparison in human eyes, in human standards, with other humans. It doesn't bring God into the equation at all. So Naaman has all these achievements, but we see immediately that they're worthless given this one issue. He has leprosy. Now, leprosy is a skin disease. It, actually, in the Bible, it often refers to a multitude of skin diseases, but here's, the, here's the, the common factor of these skin diseases. They're highly contagious, and they ruin your life. Not only do they ruin your life, but as soon as you get one, Uh, in in Israel, you were ostracized from society immediately. Your social life was at an end. Um, Naaman seems to be at the beginning of this process and at least uh, maybe his status or maybe the rules are different in in his country, but he hasn't been ostracized yet. He just has begun to have this problem of leprosy. The interesting thing is the way the Hebrew actually reads here, it's very abrupt and pathetic. Uh, My version says, My version says uh, that uh, the man was also a valiant warrior, but afflicted with uh, with leprosy. The Hebrew actually says the man was a valiant warrior, a leper. It's designed to show that nothing that he has, nothing that he has achieved in his life matters because all it boils down to is he's a leper. It takes away everything else he's got. Here's the thing. Human pride is our ability to focus on all the things we've achieved and all the things we have and all the things we want and not look at the one thing that makes all of it worthless, which is our sin. Naaman is missing out on the real problem in his life because he's got all of these things that in humans' eyes look so great. And then we see his... His ridiculous sin. In verse 1, in verse 3, we, we see this leprosy, and we see in verse 3 that, that the news of how to fix this comes from this slave girl, right? Why? What God is already starting to do right here is work on the actual issue. Naaman is focused on the outward, he's focused on all the things he's achieved, and he's focused on this skin disease. But God sees that the real problem Naaman has is that he's a prideful, sinful person that needs his sin dealt with. So where does the solution come from? The most humble place it can. A captured Israelite girl. So the valiant warrior, the guy with all the achievements, he can't solve this problem. He literally has to take his advice from the little slave girl that's in his house. That's the only way he can seem to find a solution. So God is already beginning to to deal with this. And see, the leprosy is just supposed to signify the sin in our lives. What does sin do to us? It spreads. It isolates us. And eventually it kills us. It also calls into question all of our pride. What does all of this stuff matter if you still haven't dealt with the only real problem that you have? See, here's the thing. We do this all the time. Listen, you have real problems in your life. You have bills that you can't pay. You have classes that you're struggling to make grades in. You have to get a job. You have to deal with uh, families that may be tough here or there, relationships that that are struggling, that are problems. But here's the reality. Every problem you have is a symptom of the fact that we live in a broken world. The real problem is the sin that's inside of us. That's what takes us to hell. You don't go, you don't have problem with you don't have a problem with God because you happen to exist in a broken world and things aren't right all the time. All of those things are designed to point you to the reality that there's a deeper issue. That is what God is doing in Naaman's life right now. God knows our real problem. He wants to fix sin before he fixes all of the little minutiae that you've got going on. All of the ins and outs of your life, they come after you deal with this main problem. Then we're going to see the answer, the the way we answer our own problems, our ridiculous approach. In verse 5 through 7, Naaman comes up with a plan. He's got this figured out. Now that he's got the indicator of where to go with the problem, he's, gonna, he's going to buy this healing. I want you guys to hear this number. The silver that he takes is equivalent now to $185,000. The gold is equivalent to $4.3 million. So he is taking a huge load of money. And then that's not including the clothes. Uh, Here's the best way I could put this. Picture a brand you can't afford. He's taking a lot of it. Okay. He has got a ton of nice stuff and he's going to go purchase with his pride and with his wealth and with his accomplishments. And he's taking a letter from the king. He knows people. He's important. He's going to take this letter from the highest ranking person around and say, this guy wants you to, to heal me. I'm important to him. I matter. And that's what all of this is designed to do. And then, look at what Israel's king does. Israel's king panics. Israel's king, who knows the prophet, who's seen God work, and knows Elisha and knows Elisha's existence, he, is, so he should be the person who immediately knows what the answer is. See, Naaman's coming here, and Naaman thinks, well, the prophet obviously answers the king. Because he doesn't know. He doesn't know Elisha. He doesn't know Israel's God. He doesn't understand that the prophet of God works for God. But the king of Israel, he does know this. And you know what's even more embarrassing for the king of Israel? The king of Israel acknowledges that he's not God, acknowledges that he can't fix this problem, and still doesn't turn to God. Does that sound familiar? We are constantly butting heads up against stuff that's too big for us to deal with and still trying to fix it ourselves. I have a question for you. Are the solutions you're coming up with in your life, are they working out perfectly? Everything just going great for you because of all the things you've thought up with? Then why are you still trying to answer your own questions? If it hasn't worked so far, it's not going to start working tomorrow. I've told you guys week after week that this book has all the answers. Everything God wants you to do with your life is in this book. And as long as this sits up on your shelf collecting dust and you are still trying to answer your own questions, your success rate is going to be the same that it's always been. Terrible. That's just how it goes. If you can figure out how to stop answering your own questions how to start turning to God with the the problems that you have in your life. God's solutions always work. The next section, starting in verse 8, we're going to see the ridiculous solution that we all need. Now it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why did you tear your clothes? Just have him come to me, and he shall learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the doorway of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored uh, to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious, and he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will certainly come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the sight and cure the leprosy. Are Abana and Barbar, the rivers of Damascus, not better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants approached and spoke to him, saying, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, in accordance with the word of the man of God, and his flesh was was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Okay, I want you to see the first thing in verse 8 right here. Elisha says, send him to me, and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. I've been telling you guys this for, for a minute now. Know God and make him known. This is the whole Bible. What Elisha is saying right here. Is that I'm going to spread the glory of God. That this man will know that there is a true God in Israel. See, this guy came from a land that has a God. Why couldn't that God cure him? And Elisha is saying, send him to me because when he gets here, he will know that the true God is in Israel. I'm going to spread the glory of the Lord. God's glory being known is what saves people. Because God's glory is the only true God and the only true glory there is. He's the only God with saving power. Notice the almost exasperated tone that Elisha is taking here. He's like, what are you doing? Why isn't your answer to turn to God? Look, that is, if, if there's a tone to this message, that's the one I want you to hear. What are you doing? Turn to God and watch him handle this. Know that he exists, that he's true, that he's real. And then we're gonna see God's ridiculous solution. Why does Elisha send a messenger? Listen, you can almost picture, right? Naaman, and all his self-importance, he rolls up with all his chariots and all his escorts and all his gold and silver, full majesty, and Elisha kind of peeks out the blinds and is like, look at this guy. (laughs) Turns to his nearest servant and goes, go tell him to dunk himself in a river, right? (laughs) What's happening here is that Elisha immediately sees the real problem. Elisha doesn't care about this guy's leprosy. Elisha knows that this guy has sin and pride, and that's what needs to be dealt with. He sends a messenger because he's immediately dealing with the real issue. Now, if Elisha is supposed to be the foreshadowing, a type of Jesus, we see Jesus do this all the time. Jesus constantly knew the real issue. He knew that people needed their sin healed before their physical illnesses, and he also knew the spirit of the people who were talking to him. He always knew the exact Thing somebody was struggling with and what they needed to hear to know how to actually follow him. That's what Elisha's doing right now. And he says, go wash in this. Listen, the Jordan river, it's a nasty river. It's a small, knee high, muddy river. Okay. This guy is from a place with glorious, amazing, majestic rivers. Okay. He's saying, go wash in that river. This is immediately designed to be a ridiculous solution. <laughs> Because he's getting at the real heart of the problem. Have you ever looked at all of the the solutions that we see in the Bible? They're actually all ridiculous. Jesus puts mud in the guy's eyes to make him see. Jesus also, this miracle foreshadows Jesus telling somebody to wash in a pond and be healed. Uh, How about Moses telling people, uh, look at this bronze snake in the wilderness and you won't die of snake poison that's, that's already in your system. Or how about, uh, this is one of my favorites, we're going to walk around this city once a day for seven days, it's seven times on the last day, and blow our horns and then kill everybody. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Those instructions are not rational. And yet, they do it every time and it works every time. How about this one? Admit that you're a sinner and believe that God saved you and he will. That solution is ridiculous. It doesn't make sense as a way to solve this problem. And here's the thing. Every single one of these problems points to this question. Do you or do you not believe the Bible? You ever heard somebody's testimony when they say something like, we were going through this situation where we didn't have enough money and God told us to quit our job. You ever heard one of those testimonies? How does it always end up? They obey God and God provides. It doesn't make any sense. And yet every time that that a believer and a follower of God is convicted about the obedience they need to have for what God is telling them to do, It works out, but you have to obey. And the obedience, by the way, is just demonstrating the faith that's in your heart. I trust that God's going to take care of me. That's why I can do this totally irrational and ridiculous thing, knowing that it doesn't have to make sense to me. God is going to come through. So what happens? In verse 14, So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times in accordance with the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored. God's outcome, God's outcome is always to heal us. He is dependable. He is faithful. He deals with the real problem first, and then he takes care of us. And here's the thing. The part of the reason we miss it is because we want it on our terms. We want it to look the way that we've decided it should work. That is exactly the problem that Naaman's having here. He's not looking at this from a godly perspective, from from the healing that he actually needs. He's looking at this because he wants it a certain way. He wants it his way. Romans 12.2 says, says, do not be conformed to this age, but be renewed by the transforming of your minds. Think about that for a second. Every day of your life, since you were born, your life and the culture around you and everything you can see has been conforming you to the standard of just the way things are. When you let God work in your life, He renews your mind. He changes it from this corrupt Incomplete problem into a, a mind that can see with faith, that can see that these ridiculous solutions are exactly the solutions that you need. Look in verse, sorry, I lost my place. So look in verse 11. It says, But Naaman was furious and went away, and he said, Behold, I thought he will certainly come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the side and cure the leprosy. Here's the thing. We we all have a ridiculous choice to make. We can either humble ourselves or we can have pride. And we started this story with with a man who had all the worldly pride that he could possibly have. And because of that, he almost misses the healing that's available to him because he almost doesn't humble himself. Naaman comes in saying, I'm important. I matter. I'm a big deal. I have a letter from the king. I have a lot of money. I have a huge entourage. I'm important. Come wave your hands over me and heal me. Let's make a spectacle of this. I want everyone to see how cool it is, how I could pay for this. It's all about him. He wants to wash in the nicer rivers, right? That's what he's upset about because there's better rivers back home. And because of that, he almost misses the healing that God wants to offer him. And then for the second time in Naaman's story, a servant has to bail him out. The first time it was a little slave girl. And this time his servant comes to him and goes, you're being ridiculous. He just told you to go take a bath. Why don't you try it? What if it works? Right? And you got to know that the humiliation didn't end there. He probably travels to the Jordan River, looks at it, and is like, am I seriously about to get in this thing seven times? He doesn't think it's going to work, except that he humbles himself enough to obey. He's going to obey the man of God. He's going to obey God and he's going to see with eyes of faith in his obedience what is available. Here's the thing. We want big. We want epic. We want adventure. Here's the problem. You're not the hero. You're not the one who the story's about that gets to that gets to have the epic. God is the hero. You're putting yourself in his place. You don't have anything to offer. God gives grace to the humble. Do you know what else happens with humble people? They get used. Look at Elisha. Elisha is used by God. He is is called the man of God. His name is preserved in the word for all time because he was humble. Because he followed God. We're going to see Naaman, who in this moment humbles himself and is preserved for us as a follower of God, and we're going to see someone who does the exact opposite and is preserved for us in a completely opposite way. And my question is, who do you want to be? Because one of those people was doing it his way and was the hero, and the other person had actual humility. Then we see our ridiculous transformation. Starting in verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times in accordance with the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth except Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant now. But he said, As surely as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will accept nothing. And he urged him to accept it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let your servant be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering nor a sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Regarding this matter, may the Lord forgive your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon, to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the house of Rimmon. When I bow down in the house of Rimmon, may the Lord please forgive your servant in this matter. He said to him, "Go in peace." So he went some distance from him. Okay. He's healed immediately. Keep in mind the leprosy, in the same way that the outward sign was was a sign of the inward corruption of his sin. The healing is an outward sign of the inward healing that's just taken place. He humbles himself, he obeys God, he sees with eyes of faith. God heals the outward and shows the renewal that's going on inside of Naaman. Naaman's faith got him to the God of all healing. Faith lets us experience God's healing. Just start obeying. Start demonstrating the faith, the fact that you believe the Word of God by doing what the Word of God says to do. You don't know how? Okay, I'm going to give you some tips. Go to church. Pray. Read your Bible. We say these things over and over again. But if you will spend time diligently trying to know God, obeying Him and walking in faith, He will change your whole life. Let's talk about discipleship for a second. Discipleship is not you and your best friend having a Bible study. Discipleship is putting a believer who is more mature than you in authority over your life and letting them instruct you in the things that you don't know yet. Okay, hear me out on this. When you hear testimonies of faith, You filter them to the level that you have experienced. You cannot adopt somebody else's faith. So when you hear a faith story, it only makes sense to you to the level that you have accomplished it, that you have seen it, that you have walked in it. So you are constantly hearing people tell you faith stories, and one of two things is happening. You're either throwing it off to the side and going, that person sounds crazy, or you're watering it down to the level of your experience. When you get in a discipleship relationship with a believer who is more, ma- more mature than you and has walked through deeper and deeper faith issues, they begin to guide you on this path to where you can experience deeper and deeper faith experiences, where you can see God in a deeper and deeper way. What happens in this story? Naaman has no idea what he's in for. But he submits to the authority of Elisha, and he does what he's supposed to do, and he's healed. Elisha is the more experienced believer, and he, let, and he tells Naaman, Obey this way. Do this thing. My discipleship relationships are people who I do what they say, even when it makes no sense to me whatsoever. And every single time I do, I get to come back to them and go, You won't believe what God did. And I'm like, I bet it will. Because they've already been through it. That is why we get discipled. That is why we have people pour into us. Listen, if you're not in a discipleship relationship, you are missing out on all that God has for you. Because people have gold. The words of your discipler are like gold. Be more greedy. Go get people's gold. Okay? this transformation in Naaman, it spurs immediate worship. He wants to make an offering, he wants to give material things to God, and he believes in the one God. We said that God's glory, him being made known, that that's his mission, that's what God's doing, that's what God's about, making himself known, being known by people. So God, in this moment, has accomplished that. Naaman, has met the one true God. He believes in the one true God. He is so changed by this that he wants to take dirt back home and set up a personal prayer space. Now listen, he didn't think there was magic in the dirt. This is actually a common practice in ancient times. The point is, he is setting up a visible testimony in his home that the one true God is the God of the Israelites. He is going to put on display the reality of who God is in his life. Kind of like baptism. It's a display of obedience towards God. And then he starts by immediately asking for forgiveness for for performing a task in his work. Okay, when we get to the New Testament, we get to this idea of Christian liberty. This idea that not everything should bother our conscience because we understand who God is, and the freedom that he has given us to not be enslaved to things. Naaman is already experiencing this. He's a new believer, and he's concerned about the appearance of evil in his life, but he sees the false god in his land as just that, a totally false god. He wants forgiveness for the appearance in his performance of his duty to the king of looking like he's worshiping God, but he's already stated here, I will not be worshiping. My heart belongs to the one true God. God is not a legalist, okay? God sees the heart of this new believer who's saying, I will not worship another God except for the Lord. And Elisha says what? Go in peace. He says, go in peace. Elisha also rejects the offering. Why? Elisha will not give any appearance that God can be bought. God is not something that you can purchase. We serve Him and we worship Him. He doesn't work for us. Now we're going to see the alternative our ridiculous rejection. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Armenian. The, I'm sorry, the Arame, Aramean, by not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw someone running after him, he came down from the, from the chariot to meet him and said, Is everything well? And he said, Everything is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, Be sure to take two talents, and he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes, and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, and he sent them in away, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gahazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, Did my heart not go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to accept money and accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, sheep, oxen, oxen, and male and female slaves? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence afflicted with the leprosy as white as snow. Listen. Gehazi in this moment he has decided this man doesn't deserve saving. He's not an Israelite. He owes us. You know what parable this reminds me of? The brother in the prodigal son. The brother in the prodigal son was angry because the son had come to repentance and been accepted by the father. And was being celebrated. The son who had access to everything. This is Gehazi right now. He is jealous because this man is a pagan who doesn't deserve healing. He's not an Israelite. And I'm going to get something from him. You know who Gehazi is right here? He's, He's a church kid. He's a Pharisee. He was somebody who was born righteous. He's an Israelite. I've always been in church. I've always been around Jesus. I deserve everything that I have. He's missing the point. And even worse, he's rejecting God's plan to save people. He is holding the doors to heaven shut. And in that way, he himself gets shut out of heaven. He focuses on the scene, on the temporary, on the provision. He's focused on uh, this self-provision. He's going to take matters into his own hands. And get this, he even dresses up what he's doing in holy language. This is the epitome of somebody who has all the right answers, knows all the holy speak, can quote a million verses, and doesn't understand What God is up to. That God is trying to save people. Despite having full access to the truth. You know who else this reminds me of? Judas. Judas walked with the Savior. He heard all the same messages. He had the full access to the truth. And yet, somehow he missed it because he had his own agenda for what was going on. Don't let this be you. Don't spend all this time in church. Don't memorize all the verses. Don't come to all the community things and miss what God is up to. Elisha looks at him and says, where you been, buddy? This is reminiscent of God multiple times throughout Scripture. I'll point to the Garden of Eden. God says, where are you? Listen, God always, always gives people a chance to repent. He always wants people to come back from their rebellion and their rejection. And every single time that we see this, they double down in pride. Instead of humbling themselves in repentance, what does Gehazi do? He goes, nowhere. I didn't leave. Stupid. Elisha says, do you not know that I have a special spirit? That God talks to me? That I was with you in this moment? And then he says, you are missing the point. When he says it's not a time for those things, what is he saying? He's saying you're focused on materialism. You're focused on the things of the world. Listen, I ask you guys this all the time, but here's the question. When do you want your reward? Now? Now? 80-year time span? James calls it a mist? Or do you want it in eternity? You can have it right now. You can get everything you want. You can lie, cheat, steal, claw your way to the front. And here's my question. What good is all the world's riches if you die and go to hell? That's the question. You can't pay your way out of hell. You can't buy God's healing. You can't move past that. If you don't, if you miss it now because you are focused on all the things that the world has to offer, you get none of the reward in eternity. You get nothing. I'm going to read you guys a verse. This is Luke 4:27. And there were many with leprosy in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only name in the Syrian. God doesn't care if you haven't missed a Sunday since you were born. God is only looking for people who repent and believe, who confess Him as Lord and come to know Him. God gives grace to the humble. I know that this has been a a ridiculous sermon. But God has a ridiculously simple solution for you. And you have a ridiculously deadly problem. Sin. Here's the thing. Are you a believer? Sin will still ruin your life. Are you not a believer? Sin will take your life. And there is no coming back from that. God has given you a ridiculously simple solution. Humble yourself before Him. You would have to be ridiculous to choose anything else.